epic stories and epic characters are easy to tie myself to, to relate to, but sometimes the stories of the women in the Bible can be unrelatable or, I don't know, just not as epic. But the truth is, is their stories are my stories too. And not just for a time past, but for a time now. Their failures are my failures. They're good, they're bad. It all ends up kind of being beautiful. It's a greater story and we're all part of it. All of it. The good, the bad, and the beautiful. Hey, if your son, your daughter, were old enough to get married, and they came home and they said, I have met the woman, I have met the man of my dreams, and before you had a chance to physically meet them, you said to your son or your daughter, describe to me the person you want to marry. What are they like? You're infatuated, you want to marry them? What is it that's so great about them? So let's say that they then began to uh, describe attributes of their personality, and they said things like this. Well, uh, this, this woman is just one of the most persuasive people you could ever meet in your life. <laughs> or if she said, uh, this guy, man, let me tell you about this guy. This guy, man, he is determined. Or if they said about either of them, they have great leadership ability. They, they know how to lead. They know how to get things done. Or they said things like, man, they are so strong or they are so bold. Or how about this word? They, they're a fierce person. You know, fierce has that connotation where it's good and bad. If I said that person's fiercely loyal, that's good. But I said in an argument, they're fierce. So you kind of want to know, what do you mean by those things right there? Um, let's say that a presidential candidate. Now, you see, I thought about, <laughs> do I say that? Because I know right now that's like, what does he say? I don't, I'm just saying a presidential candidate. That's all I'm saying. If we said of them... Their personality was that they are a very cunning person. Uh, they, they have great leadership qualities. They're very authentic. Authentic is one of those words. Authentic to what? I mean, the qualities and the characteristics I'm describing are really powerful things, but it depends on how they're used, huh? I mean, persuasive is a good thing if it's used right. Persuasive used wrong can do a lot of damage in a person's life. Uh, to be strong. What a great quality, but to be strong in bad things, not so great. If I were to describe, hey, uh, next week, man, we've got a beat on a brand new pastor. And I said, here's the qualities and characteristics we're looking for in a new pastor for our church. Someone who's persuasive, someone who's determined, someone who's strong, someone who's bold, someone who's authentic, someone who's fierce. I mean, you could look at that and go, that's, that's good, it could be bad. It just depends on how it's used. And I describe these things right now because... Most of these things we would want said about us as long as they're said in the right way. The truth of the matter is they're great qualities and characteristics, but they can describe both good and bad people. And in this case, I'm talking about Jezebel from the Bible. She's known for being a, a wicked person. There's no question that she was. But if you step back, step back away from the story, and you were to said, uh, I don't really know her, so describe her to me, she could be described as persuasive. She could be prescribed as uh, cunning, as determined, as a leader, as strong, as bold, as fierce, as authentic. Uh, authentic to what she was. She never hid that. So 
the nature and the message that we're teaching on is the good, the bad, and the beautiful. And um, this week we're talking about the bad. And the premise just simply is this. I want you to hear this. Before I teach about this woman, before I sort of head down in a direction, I want you to think about this because this is really important. Inside all of us, male and female, young and old, inside all, hey, say that, all of us. Inside all of us is the capacity for spirit and flesh, good and evil. Do you agree with that statement? It's just simply the way that it is. I mean, the Bible teaches that. Uh, the book of Galatians. This is chapter 5, verse 16. It's not in my notes or your notes. I just wrote it down thinking this afternoon. This is Paul. He says, I say to you, let the Holy Spirit guide your life, and then you won't be doing what your sinful nature wants to do. So let the Holy Spirit fill you, guide you, and keep you, and then you won't do what the flesh wants to do. And I'm just saying, all of us in this room, all of us have the capacity for good or evil inside of us. And the difference is, when you're submitted to God, God can use those characteristics for good, and submitted to this world, those things can be used for evil. So it's why, it's why good people can do evil things. It's why you can find evil people do a good thing. Inside all of us lay the capacity for spirit and flesh, and believers have the ability to be submitted to God, submitted to the Holy Spirit. So the difference between spirit and flesh, whether you live your life for good or evil, the difference is going to be found in this word. The difference simply is submission to God. If you've got a pen or a pencil, or you're using the online version of the U-Notes, you might want to get those things ready or fill in the blank. It'll help you remember it. So the difference simply is just submission to God. So in talking about this woman, this queen, this person, uh, she is not the only person in the world who ever did what she did. She was not uh, the devil incarnate. Um, she was not like uh, the most wicked person who ever lived. That was not the issue. She was a person who was incredibly um, unsubmitted to God. She went the opposite way in her life. And so you can read about her and you can say to yourself, man, what an evil person. I I'm just going to tell you right now, she's us and us is her without God helping us. It's the only hope that we have is God. It's the bottom line. All right, so let me just do this real quick, and let me just show you um, how when it's right, it's a good thing, but how when it's not submitted, it can be a bad thing. The first one, first two, just fill out this way. Fierce, the word fierce, F-I-E-R-C-E, -E, fierce. Unsubmitted to God becomes terror. Fierce, unsubmitted to God becomes terror. So let me tell you three stories about Jezebel that are in the Bible. You'll find her life summed up between 1 Kings and 2 Kings, two books from the Old Testament. And they just talk about the things that she did, who she was married to, how she operated. Uh, one of the stories, let me set it up this way. There was a really powerful prophet in the Bible named Elijah. How many of you ever heard of Elijah? Hey, Elijah did awesome things for God, man. He was like the man in his day. I would say like the Billy Graham of that day, but Billy didn't come close to who this guy was. Elijah was a powerful man. He raised the dead. He saw miraculous things happen. He represents a, um, um, the, the, the forthcoming of John the Baptist. He's in that spirit. John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. Uh, Elijah was the preparer. He's the one that got things ready. Yet Elijah, man, had to deal with this woman named Jezebel. And she was so fierce and her, her personality, her gifting, so unsubmitted to God that she could use her fierceness to terrorize people. And he was one of the people that she terrorized. So one of the most uh, incredible stories uh, is that Israel um, had, had an issue where they got divided over who do we worship. Do we worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? 
or do we begin to worship all of these other gods of the world? And one of those gods at the time was called uh, Baal. And so Israel finds itself in a problem where some of the people hold on to the worship of God and some people begin to worship the Baals. And she was a person who came from a background, their God was Baal. And so when she married into the king of Israel, man, she brought in the Baal worship and they began to establish temples for Baal all over the nation of Israel and it really misled the people. And onto the scene comes Elijah. And Elijah has a confrontation with the prophets of Baal. There are 450 prophets of Baal. One Elijah, Elijah stands up against the prophets and he says, okay, uh, let's see who really is God. And he comes up with a contest. And here's the contest. We're both going to build altars. We're both going to put on the altar a sacrifice. And then the God who answers by fire will be God and you can go first. So 450 prophets begin to dance and scream and shout. The Bible says they cut themselves. They were serious about this, man. They're yelling. They're crying. They do this night and day. Nothing happens. So Elijah begins to taunt them. Maybe you're not screaming loud enough. Maybe your God, this is what it says, maybe your God has taken a bathroom break. <laughs> Literally says that. Keep going. He just lets them wear themselves out. At the end of that time, man, they, they can't give any more. They've tried everything that they know how to do. Exhausted, they just lay down. Elijah gets up and he says, okay, let the God who answers by fire be God. And so he says, take water, and they soak down the altar, man. They soak down the offering. He just makes it even more impossible. And then he just simply prays, uh, God, answer my prayer. And the Bible says a consuming fire came out of heaven. Not only did it consume uh, Elijah's altar, but it consumed Baal's altar. It burned everything up. And then Elijah, in a moment of power, stood up and said, Quit standing and wavering. If this is God, serve him. If it's not, take off and go the other way. They all said, God is God. It was a revival that happened in the nation. Uh, Elijah took the 450 prophets and by himself with a sword killed all 450 of them. Now, say what you want to, that's a dramatic moment. I mean, I don't think people are standing there going like, eh, I don't know which way I want to. I mean, people probably are like, wow, big statement. So this guy is on a spiritual high. The nation is experiencing revival. He kicks out this misleading, false religion. He establishes the worship of Jehovah again. You would think that that guy right there is at the highest place he can possibly be. And Jezebel sends him a message. And I want to read to you three verses and show you how fierce this woman is and how powerful she could be. And how fierceness, when it's not submitted to God, is like terror. So look at this. Her husband is Ahab. Ahab is the king. Elijah's the prophet. And Jezebel's the queen. When Ahab got home, and home is from watching this thing just happen. I mean, Ahab himself is like, we're in trouble. We've gone the wrong way. So when Ahab got home, he told his queen Jezebel everything that Elijah had done. Including the way he had killed all the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the God strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed my prophets. You would think Elijah would say, hey, I'm going to call down fire on you. Just watch this. But here's what Elijah does. He was afraid and what? Fled for his life. Just look at me real quick and put this in context. If you would just experience this spiritual, if you could call down fire. All right. You're in the tech center driving. And you're like, that's it. And that you just drive. 
you would feel some level of power. Authority. I'm joking a little. But you, I mean, you would have to say, that, that's miraculous. It's not like when you pray and you hear cricket. God answered by, you would think, watch this. And this woman is so fierce. All she says to him, may the gods do more to me by this time tomorrow if I haven't killed you. And instead of standing up after this victory, instead of going, God will stand up for me. This guy immediately is terrorized by what, and the only thing I can figure is she was so fierce that she could strike terror in the heart of a prophet. And look at me real quick. What this really, really is about, man, fierceness is a characteristic and a quality that can be used to be a powerful thing. If I say a person is fiercely loyal, fiercely competitive, which I wish we could say that about the Broncos. They are fiercely... <laughs> <laughs> oh come on I just <laughs> it's my way of overcoming a bad week uh, if I use the word in the right connotation you get it but when I use it I worked for a woman that was the most fierce person I'd ever met in my life until this day she still holds number one as fierce um, it was when I was going to school trying to get into ministry, and we had two little babies at home, and um, I had to take this job. I worked two jobs outside of the ministry trying to get into it. One was with Orkin Pest Control, which was really difficult, and the other one was with a car rental company. And she was the manager of the car rental company. And she was one of, man, you talk about an organized person. You talk about a person that was easy to follow. You talk about a person that... You, you wanted to give your best for this woman. She had that quality. You ever follow a leader like that? Just wanted to give your best. But she had this one flaw, is that if you made a mistake, you ever worked for that person? One mistake, man, and she was so fierce. And she could undress you and lash you with the words of her mouth in a second. And you were standing there like, in front of everybody. Did you ever have that happen? And it created a fear amongst the people that worked for her. And when you have that fear thing going on, it's terror. And so what it did is caused everybody to cower around her. And instead of serving her because she was a great leader, you served because you were afraid to mess up. Which is a terrible atmosphere to live in, by the way. Fierce is a powerful thing, but when it's unsubmitted to God, man, the devil uses it to terrorize people. Until this day, I was 20, 23, 24 years old. Until this day, some of those experiences still... Dude, that, that's a spirit is what that is. And when it's used for God, it's a powerful thing, but it's used for the enemy. It's a really negative thing. And I'm just going to say to you right now, inside of all of us, we think, well, no, that's that. Inside of all of us are gifts and talents and ability, so many great things that God has given us. But if we don't submit our lives to God, then our flesh can take over, and those very things that are gifts become curses to the people around us. It can happen in a marriage, and it can happen at your work, and it can happen 
in politics and it can happen in every facet of life. So you can have great qualities and characteristics, but unsubmitted to God, man, they're terror. Let me give you the second one. Influence. Unsubmitted is corruption. I'll say it again. Influence. Unsubmitted can be corruption. Influence is a powerful thing. Leadership, in its very basic premise. What is leadership? By definition, leadership is simply influence. You either influence for good or you influence for bad. We're always doing that. So leadership is just simply, it's influence. What I'm doing right now has an influence. And pastors, hey, listen, so think about it in the realm of pastors right now. Pastors have the opportunity to stand up because they have authority, and especially when people submit to them spiritually, pastors have a profound influence in a person's life. But a pastor who gets off with God can influence people in such a bad way. It's called a cult. Familiar with the terminology? So a cult comes from where? A leader who gets off and can mislead people. Does it? All right, so influence, unsubmitted is corruption. Another story about Jezebel. DJ, when we were studying, brought this one up to me. I forgot about this story. Um, Ahab and Jezebel together, man, were really a negative influence on the nation of Israel. Uh, Ahab would act like a baby, and Jezebel um, was fierce. And Ahab decided one day, right next to the palace was a vineyard, and he owned a really nice vineyard across town, but he didn't want to have to take the energy to go all the way over to his vineyard. And there was a guy named Naboth that lived right next door, and he had a decent little vineyard. Not the best, but it was decent, but it was given to him from his father. It was an inheritance. And he took care of it, he watched over it, and one day Ahab just simply said, you know what, uh, I, I don't want to have to go across town to my vineyard. I want your vineyard. So he offered the guy, hey, what would you sell it to me for? Because I'll, I'll trade you, I'll buy it. You name your own price. It doesn't matter to me. I'll make you rich right now. And Naboth just simply said, listen, uh, nice offer, but this was given to me as an inheritance. My dad owned it. My grandfather worked it. And I can't sell this, king. That's nothing wrong with that. But Ahab went home like a baby and pouted. The Bible says he wouldn't eat and he wouldn't drink and he laid on the floor. And his wife came in one day and said, what are you doing? Aren't you the king? Act like a king. And she came up with this scam to take this man's property. So she tells Ahab while he's pouting, uh, are you the king of Israel or not? Jezebel demanded. Get up and eat something. Don't worry about this anymore. I'll get you Naboth's vineyard. And so this is how she did it. She wrote letters in Ahab's name. She sealed them with his seal and sent them to the elders and the other leaders of the town where Naboth lived. In her letters, here's what she commanded the people to do. Call the citizens together for a time of... Golly, man. She's going to use the things of God to manipulate people to get what she wants. So call the citizens together for a time of fasting and give Naboth a place of honor and then seat, the two, and then seat two scoundrels across from him who will accuse him of cursing God and the king. And then once they do that, before he has a chance to defend himself, take him out and stone him to death. There's a nice lady. And that's exactly what she did. Just simply because this guy would not sell his vineyard, she came up with this plan right here, and she was so influential over her husband and had such influence amongst the people, she was able to get away with this thing. And they stoned this man 
and took his vineyard. But there was another prophet named Elisha. And here was Elisha's prophecy. Right on this vineyard that you stole, God will kill you. And it took a few years, but in battle, an arrow. Here's what the Bible says. An arrow flew through all the other arrows. And right where his armor came together, it just happened to pierce when he turned a particular way. And he bled to death right in the vineyard that he stole from that man. This is a powerful thought. I just wrote down, influence unsubmitted simply becomes corruption. Corruption. Uh, let me give you a couple of thoughts right now. In our news today, if I say this word, tell me the thought that comes to you now. Harvey Weinstein. Yuck. Disgusting. Uh, predator. Yay, nay. Predator. I mean, you come up with a lot of other words, but we're in church. So, predator. So, and here's the worst thing about it. The guy's in a, pati- a particular position of power, like one of the top of the top, he can make or break an actress by putting her in a film. Here's the problem. This guy's an untouchable. He sits in a position where nobody can say anything to him, do anything about it. He's in this high position, and these actresses have to go through him to get a position. So here's what he does. If you sleep with me, if you fill in the blank, then I'll do this for you. And he was in such a position of power, he used his influence to be a predator towards all of these actresses. Yes or no? Yes. So now we read about it and we ask ourselves, how could this happen? Such a, inside all of us is a potential to do things just like that. You say, I'd never do things like that. Maybe not the exact thing, but inside of you is flesh, and flesh unsubmitted to God will hurt other people. It'll use other people. It will demand things of other people you should never demand. You will end up in a position in your life with somebody else. You can sit here and think, Pastor, I'd never do that. I put down, just in my notes, um, this is one that rings true to me all the time. I always have to remember this. uh, Religious leaders. So it's not uncommon in our generation to find religious leaders in high positions that we find out behind the scenes their personal lives didn't lend up to the public persona. Yes or no? So when I started this church, and I won't name names, you'll probably know who I'm talking about, not far, the next big city to the south of us, Colorado Springs, was a pastor of a major church. Let me tell you about him for just a second. When I started the church 20 years ago, and nobody, nobody would have anything to do with me because I, I wasn't any. I, I couldn't get an audience with any pastor of any means. So I, didn't have, I wasn't anybody. And I called this guy in Colorado Springs. And he doesn't know me from Adam, but I said, would you just meet with me? I don't know what I'm doing, and I need help. And the guy gave me an appointment. He brought me back in his office, and he spent time with me. And this is what I remember more than anything else. That guy, behind the scenes, telling me, you can make it. You can do this. You, this is what he said. You have the skills. I don't even know you, but you have the skills. I can just tell to be a great pastor. Now, he didn't mean it. He didn't know from, there was no word. It wasn't prophetic. Here's what, the, he was a great encourager. And then a few years later, I find him on Nine News. Having, for years and years, done things behind the scenes, drugs and prostitutes and all sorts of ugly things. And he lost his ministry and lost the national prominence. 
And he's one story of millions of stories out there. So the other side of that, let me just tell you, for every one like that, there's 100,000 little pastors like me who actually love Jesus and submit their lives to him, okay? So it's don't just always think. But it's on. So, so when that happens, so many people get damaged spiritually, and so many people, every time it happens, it happens in our community, not far, across the highway it happened. Just across the highway from here it happened, in a, in a great church not far from it happened. And people are like, how could this happen? There was just such an anointing. Because anointing and character are two different things. And we always just think, well, as long as everything looks okay publicly, it's got to be okay privately. Think about your life. You can show things publicly but not be that way privately. And that's what this is right here, man. Influence. We all have influence. Some of us to greater and some of us to lesser. But if it's not submitted to God, it can be used for corruption in a person's life. Politics. And I'm not making a statement about any politician. But we tend to think because a person holds an office, it says everything is okay. No, they got elected. I'm not saying anything. I'm not. I'm just saying we always tend to think, oh, they're influential. Influence without submission is corruption. Maybe the one that I would point out to you more than anything, uh, the U.S. is in a powerful, influential position in that this world. Do you agree with that? Probably the most influential, influential country uh, today. We influence more around this world. Let me, just, let me just hit the one that I want to talk about here for a We influence Israel more than any nation. And our influence on that nation, unsubmitted to God, we make that nation do things sometimes that we'll answer to God for. Hear what I'm saying in that right there. And at the same time, man, we can be so influential with the rest of the world about that nation. Now I am being political. Influence unsubmitted is absolutely corruption. It's inside of all of us. It's just a husband in a marriage, a wife in a marriage, a mom and a dad. You have influence. If you own a company, you work at a company, you go to school, you teach. It doesn't matter. You have influence unsubmitted. The enemy can use it for corruption. Submitted, you can do powerful things with influence. I'll give you the third one. Write down. Uh, persuasion. Persuasion unsubmitted is nothing more than manipulation. But persuasion, when it's submitted to God, persuasion can do powerful things. Paul says that our job as believers is to persuade people to be reconciled to Jesus. We're to persuade people. Not just to say, hey, whatever you think. We're to persuade people. No matter if you, if you agree with what I teach or you disagree with what I teach, if it's your first time here or your thousandth time here, bottom line is every time I get up here, yes or no, I'm always trying to persuade. Yes. The one, you have to agree. Even if you disagree, you have to agree I'm trying to persuade. Yes. If you disagree, stay here because I'm going to convince you right now. That's, oh, come on, you guys. Persuasion is a, it's a powerful, people can be persuaded. Pe- people can, persuasion in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's a good thing, but it needs to be used under submission to God. Otherwise, it turns into manipulation. Okay, one more story about Jezebel. First Kings 16. Uh, it's just a little beginning story about her. When I mentioned that she was the one that um, brought in the worship of Baal. Into Israel. Remember, Israel exists. God came to Abraham and says, 
come out from amongst these people. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I will make you into a great nation, and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Not only is it prophetic for them, but we, we see it today. So Israel, the only reason Israel even exists is because they were to worship the God who is God. And this woman who, who comes from a foreign people and worships a foreign God marries Ahab, and she's influential. But she uses her influence for the things of this world, for the enemy. And so it just tells this quick story. Ahab, the son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight. Look at this description. Even more than any of the kings before him, and as though it were not enough to follow the sinful example of Jeroboam, he married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbal of the Sidonians, and he began to bow down and worship of Baal. First, Ahab built a temple and an altar for Baal in Samaria. Remember Judea, Samaria, that's all of Israel. And then he set up an Asherah pole. Real quick, so you read that a thousand times in the Bible, not really know what, why is that so bad. Uh, first of all, it's worshiping the false god, but it was a sexual cult. And an Asherah is a phallic symbol. And they, they used and abused people at this site, it wasn't just worship, but they tied worship to a sex cult. And this is going on in the very nation that exists only to worship God. So, so he set up an Asherah pole. And look at this description. Ahab did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. How many of you know that is not the thing you want written historically about you after you're dead? He did more to provoke God than any other king before him. Is that the end of the verse right there? Is that somebody, yay, no, yes? Is that what it says? Okay. So he marries Jezebel. Ahab didn't grow up worshiping Baal. He didn't grow up understanding about the Asherah and the sex cult. When he married Jezebel, Jezebel brought all of these things with her from her people who were the Sidonians, and she introduced Ahab to, to this false god and this false religion. She was so influential that she got her husband to follow her, and he's so influential that the entire nation of Israel backslides and goes the wrong direction. Persuasion is a powerful gift, but when it's unsubmitted, it's manipulation, man. It manipulates people. It's a fine line between persuasion and manipulation. All right, I do my best to persuade, but I always realize when I hit a point to go any further, I could get in the flesh and begin to do something that manip I can manipulate a person's emotions while I'm up here. I can manipulate... A person's just, you know, if you really loved God, you'd say amen right now. No. I'm pointing out that's manipulation. You see, that's... <laughs> you see how easy it is? Like that right there. All right, let me throw this to you. I don't recommend a lot of books. Um... See, did they have, there it is, they got it up there. Uh, it's called A Tale of Three Kings, and it's written by the author Gene Edwards, and it's Tyndale House is the publisher. And the reason I tell you the publisher is because if you try to find this book, 
is very difficult to find today. But if you looked up Tyndale House, you could buy this book. And I think this book is $6, $7, something like that. It's pretty cheap. And some of you are going to hear what I'm about to say. And some of you, um, you, it'll just go right over your head. This was one of the most influential books I ever read in my life. Not as a pastor, but as a believer, it shaped me. The subtitle of this book simply is this. You can't see it, but it says a study in brokenness. And if I were to describe this book to you, I would say it's not a study in brokenness. It's a study in lordship. And here's what this book is about. It's about three kings, a tale of three kings. And the three kings are Saul, David, and David had a son named Absalom. All three of them were kings. The first one, Saul, the Bible says he was tall. He was head and shoulders tall above everybody else. And when you looked at him, he looked like a king. He talked like a king. He acted like a king. He was kingly. But here's the problem with Saul. Saul's flesh always ruled his life. In a pinch, Saul would never wait for God. He would always take matters into his own hands and do his own thing. And Saul ended up in destruction because he was never submitted to God. David. David became king because Saul wouldn't listen to God. And God finally says to the prophet Samuel, he says, I've had it. In fact, he even tells Samuel, who liked Saul, he said, how long are you going to keep favoring Saul? I'm done with him. I picked a new king. Get your horn of oil and go with me. And he goes down to a guy named Jesse. Jesse has a bunch of sons, but the youngest son, like all sons, you know, he's not really included when he says, bring your sons to me. So he prays the first seven in front of him, and they're big and they're tall, like Saul, and they look really kingly and powerful, but God doesn't choose any of them. And the prophet says to Jesse, man, are those all your sons? And he goes, well, there's one more, but it can't be him. Can't be him. You, you know, maybe David's biggest problem uh, was not Goliath. It was his father who disrespected him and never saw him for what he could be. Goliath wasn't really the issue. Jesse was the issue. And so he sent for him and he brings him in out of the field and the Lord immediately says, that's the one, anoint him as king. And um, Samuel gets up and pours the flask of oil on David's head and prays over him and says, you are the king. So the problem is he wasn't crowned king for 13 more years. And those 13 years were the worst 13 years that anybody could live. He lived in ditches. Uh, he worked for a spear thrower. Saul would constantly throw spears at David because he was jealous of... You know, David's best skill was learning how to dodge spears. It's a really powerful skill. If you can learn it at work, you can survive anything. <laughs> he didn't try to kill Saul. He always respected Saul, and he figured that uh, when God's ready to put me there, uh, he'll put me there. So here's the trick to it. At any time... Uh, all through the Bible, there are stories about David and Saul. And all through the Bible, there were opportunities for David to kill Saul. He could have slit his throat several times. Could have stabbed him while he was sleeping. Could have stabbed him while he was going to the bathroom. Literally, that's what it says. But every time, he wouldn't take matters into his own hands. And the difference between Saul and David was that Saul would take matters into his own hands and David wouldn't. And when David finally became king, he actually could lead Israel to the things of God where Saul never could. 
But after David becomes king, he has a son who's just like Saul. He decides to take matters in his own hand, and he deposes his father and sets himself up as the king. And so it tells the story of these three men, and the only difference between these three kings was that David submitted himself to God, and God, when you think about those guys, what's the one that stands out? David. Just look at me real quick. In this room are Saul's, David's, and Absalom's. And the difference between a person who submits their life to God, like a David, you may go through hell, but God will exalt you in your life. But if you're used to being a person of the flesh, it never works out. No matter how much you try to grab and how much you try to become, it'll crumble around you because you're a person of the flesh. And really, man, in my mind, we talk about this woman. It's so easy to say, oh, she was just evil. She was nasty. She was wicked. You write her off as though she was the only person. She's the devil incarnate. She's a human. And her's us, and us is her, and the only difference is we submit to God or we don't submit to God because any person that goes through their life letting the enemy control them can end up in really wicked places, doing wicked things. Make sense? And I think maybe, maybe the whole message really comes down to just this idea, um, the lordship issue. Listen, this is sort of like a, a cliche. Jesus is Lord. It's not enough to say it. You've got to live it. Jesus isn't the Lord because you have a bumper sticker. He's the Lord because your life is submitted to him. Years ago, I was teaching on the idea of discipleship. People today have the idea, man, you know, the gift of salvation is free and it's easy and it's just, just accept it. That's true. Salvation is free. But discipleship costs you everything you have. If you want to be a disciple, you have to bend the knee. And to bend the knee is far more than just saying something with your words. It's what you do with your life. And so many people say, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. It's not a judgment statement. I'm just calling out. It's so easy to say he's Lord and everything else in our life says that he's not. It's not condemnation. It's just simply this. When we submit to him, that's when Jesus is Lord. When our lives truly belong to him, not to ourselves, not to what we want, not to when things get hard, I can take matters into my own hands. When we submit to him, we have to say, my life is not my own, it's yours, and I'm going to stay in this position that you are in charge, and if I have to go through it, then I have to go through it, but you are the Lord. Lordship is a far greater issue than just saying something with your mouth. It's what your life says when you bend the knee to Jesus. And here's the truth. He calls us to lordship. He calls us to bend the knee. He calls us to submit our lives to him. And this is where you can emotionally manipulate it. He's done so much for us. He's given all for us. How can we not give it to him? That's emotions. It's on the inside of you. Who's the Lord of your life? Because it's not a one-time decision. It's an everyday, moment by moment, Jesus is Lord or he's not. And I just call you and remind you and ask you right now, who's the Lord of your life?
Is it your flesh? Is it your money? Is it your job? Your government? Who's the Lord of your life? It's inside right now. Lordship's not salvation. It's after salvation. It's that my life belongs to you. Who does your life belong to? Father, It's far more than a one-time decision. It's far more than emotions. I got excited and I gave my life to Jesus. It's far more than just words. It's a complete and utter, my life belongs to God. Therefore, I trust him, I surrender to him, my marriage is his, what's going on in my life today, it's his, how I respond to people is his, all that's happening is his, and make Jesus the Lord. And so as you're just hearing this right now and you're thinking about it, it may not be a particular thing, although it could be. It may just be overall, who's the Lord of your life? And God could use a message like this to cause us to bend the knee. Who does your life belong to? If you're a believer, it belongs to God. And I call you this day to settle the lordship issue. So even think while you hear this, maybe you're just going through hell right now and you think to yourself, God has nothing to do with all of this stuff going on in my life. And while God doesn't bring hell into our lives, just like with David, God can use it to conform our character to the character of Jesus. God can use the difficulties He can use the good. He can use persecution. He can use tribulation. He can use ups, downs, all things in our life to get us where he needs us to be. And that lordship issue is simply saying, I bow my knee and I will not take my life into my own hands and I will submit to you. You're the Lord. You direct And as you consider that right now, it's not an emotional decision I want you to make because emotions will last till the next emotion overtakes it. Who's the Lord of your life? Before the Lord, don't be afraid to answer that. And if you find yourself like, I'm not sure, do business with him tonight.
Father, we bow the knee to you. Help us, because it's not an easy thing. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.